Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. In the Gospel of Mark, the teaching of the Old Testament is the teaching of Jesus. In obedience to his Father, when the Markan Jesus speaks, his words never go beyond what is written in Scripture most notably Isaiah, but also Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, the Psalms, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Joel, Zechariah, and Malachi. All these are quoted or paraphrased by Jesus, not interpreted, but quoted, preached, and applied in the story. It is no wonder that Jesus appeared with Moses and Elijah in chapter 9. Together, these three embody the purpose of Mark's Gospel, to carry the Law and the Prophets to the Gentiles. This is exactly what Jesus does, and that is why a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. You're listening to the Bible as literature. This is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 172 of the Bible as Literature podcast. Up until now, it's been very important to understand that Jesus in the story is carrying the teaching to the nations. He is the one who is carrying the scroll of the Torah. Because his movements reflect the movements of the Apostle Paul in the Pauline literature, it's understandable and in fact correct to start to see Jesus also as a metaphor for the teaching that's being carried. But in a very specific way, he carries the Torah, Jesus carries the Torah, which is his assigned duty from his father. But in a historical setting, what's carrying the Torah to the Gentiles is the gospel. This is very important to understand. Jesus is carrying the teaching but he also serves as a metaphor for the movement of the teaching and for the way in which the gospel teaching itself carries the teaching of the Old Testament to the nations. Right, and it's significant that Jesus doesn't talk about himself without talking about the gospel in verse 35, lose his life for my sake and the gospels. And then later on, whosoever therefore would be ashamed of me and of my words. So Jesus cannot be separated from what he's teaching. And this is the problem is that people get excited about Jesus, but not about the teaching. They love to watch him, but they aren't interested in listening to him. And therefore, they don't understand his basic purpose for coming to them. They don't understand his basic purpose as teacher, which is to teach, and it's to teach with specific words. And so I agree 100%, Father, you cannot separate Jesus from the gospel, Jesus from the words that he's teaching, and Jesus does it himself in the previous chapter. 
At the same time, Jesus is a man who is carrying the gospel. This is an important distinction because if you just become lazy and try to make an ontology even out of the gospel itself, you're going to miss so much of what's happening in Mark. For me, this has been the key discovery reading this text, that Jesus is carrying something and everyone is trying to stop him from sharing it. And then when he shares it with others who do receive it, they're able to share it. So we have to always think critically and not get lazy. Yes, Jesus is a metaphor for the scroll. Jesus carries the scroll. Jesus mirrors the movement of the scroll, and the scroll mirrors the movement of Jesus in the narrative arc of the New Testament. But we're still dealing with the teaching, and in Mark specifically, Jesus is saying, it's of no use to me if you love me, but you don't love my words. And that is of the utmost importance. And Jesus was saying to them, truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Again, the Lord is talking about his glorification on the cross. We hit this last week emphatically. He is not talking about the bling. He's not talking about the things that people want or get excited about. He's talking about the very specific fact that he is going to be judged and condemned and executed. And everyone who is with him, everyone who is listening to him teach in the gospel, is going to see him glorified in this way. And that will be the manifestation of God's power, because that power is proclaimed in human weakness. And it's the power of the teaching, because everyone who looks upon the crucified Son of Man, everyone who looks upon the cursed one, falls under judgment. And that is the power we're talking about. We were discussing this weekend, Father, about this crazy question that somebody raised. Why does the church emphasize the resurrection more than the passion of Christ. First of all, it's a false question. We don't emphasize one over the other. And secondly, it's a wicked question because we shouldn't emphasize one over the other. And oftentimes, when people discuss this verse, they think, oh, uh, back then they thought that the second coming was coming right around the bend. And so Jesus was promising that the second coming was going to be there, and they were all going to see Jesus come on the wings of the angels. And they misunderstand that they're going to see the kingdom of God come with power when Jesus is on the cross. As you say, Father, this is when Jesus is glorified. If you want to know what citizen of the kingdom of God looks like, look at the cross. Then you're going to see it. If you want to see what a true citizen, not only a citizen, but the ruler, the prince who serves on behalf of the king, God his father, if you want to see what he looks like, he looks like the one on the cross. This is how you rule. This is the throne, as you say, Father, from which the king judges. Look, I can tell you exactly why you emphasize the resurrection over the passion of Christ. It's because you're like the apostles in Mark. You're like the crowds in Mark. You want a realized eschatology. You want all the benefits, but none of the pain. But the problem is, that with the gospel, it's like aspirin mixed with honey. You have to take both, and you have to deal with the aspirin. Because if you don't, if you skip the aspirin, the honey becomes a curse. This is Paul's whole point in 1 Corinthians. You're walking around as though you're filled with the Spirit, as though you're raised, and that's why you're abusing each other. 
because the cross represents the greatest inconvenience in the history of inconveniences. The cross represents the neighbor that you don't want to deal with. The cross represents the enemy that you would prefer to hate that you would prefer to just disappear. You remove the cross from the equation or de-emphasize it and focus on what makes you happy. I mean, you become the definition of someone who's psychologically in denial. These are the greatest abusers, people who pretend everything is fine, and then their actions cause real suffering in the world, and then they act shocked and scandalized when the consequences of their apathy, which is born out of their rapture with themselves and their happy world, they're shocked then when something terrible happens in the world. But the thing that's happening around them is the consequence of their inability to love because they're just so content with the resurrection and they're ignoring the cross. The word that Jesus uses to call this out is Satan, because this is what he called Peter when Peter was not interested in hearing about the suffering that Jesus was going to have to go through. So we can say psychologically deranged, Jesus can say Satan, we're talking about the exact same thing. It's someone who will not deal with the person standing in front of them who's an inconvenience. And this is why Jesus talks about the power of the kingdom. It's why Paul talks about the power of the kingdom in 1 Corinthians. It's why in the prophets again and again, the only ultimate end of this denial of the cross is harsh judgment. And it's not as though, you know, you can't make out of this as though God is sitting in heaven throwing lightning bolts. We've said this before. In scripture, there is action, reaction, cause, and effect. You commit a sin, that sin has a consequence. If you commit a sin in utter denial and with no self-reflection, which is what it means to emphasize the resurrection over the cross, then the can that you keep kicking down the road gets bigger and bigger until when you face it, the judgment is so harsh that there's nothing you can do. It's too late. And we will see very soon in Mark that it is too late. I can't stress this enough, Richard, that the time is now to face the truth of the human condition, to face the truth of our behaviors. And that's why you have to keep the cross front and center. You have to die. Jesus had to die. There's no way around it. And any attempt to minimize or try to get around death psychologically is unto destruction. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. Jesus takes these disciples who are problematic, these disciples who don't understand, and he's trying to make a point with them. I mean, that's the thing, is that Jesus doesn't take any action without making a point. You know, his teaching and himself are the same. He's always conveying his teaching. Now they're going to see something about Jesus. But, you know, one thing we have to be careful of is, you know, people love the fireworks show. And so Jesus is going to continue to balance this idea of his performing these miracles, him appearing transfigured on the mountain, yet without obscuring the teaching that he's trying to teach, that it's not about him. And so this is the important part of this scene. Not that he's bright and shiny, because he's been bright and shiny before, but he doesn't end up bright and shiny. We know that this isn't the story people want to make out of this. This is how the resurrection is going to look, and isn't it awesome? And they love transfiguration. They get excited about transfiguration because it shows how shiny and white and new Jesus is going to be at the resurrection. But again, people get excited 
excited about the resurrection. But interestingly, people don't go to church Monday through Saturday. Why is this? They get excited. Oh, Sunday, we commemorate the resurrection. Well, what about Monday through Saturday? What are you doing with the rest of your life? Are you recognizing Jesus as the one who's also crucified? And that's where he shows his power. The key is in the next verse, Richard, and his garments became radiant and exceedingly white as no launderer on earth can whiten them. The white is the baptismal garment. The white is the garment of the martyr. That is what it represents. That is the point we're trying to make, that what is bright and radiant is the witness of the death of Jesus Christ. That is what he is driving at. It is a proclamation of the death of Christ, which is offered as a witness to what we are about to hear in the story. It's tempting to say what we are about to see, but we're not seeing anything. We're about to hear more about the transfiguration in the story. Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. What is it that Jesus is dying for? What is it that he's bearing witness to? We have the law and the prophets together with Jesus, who represents the gospel. And it is the gospel that is carrying Elijah and Moses to the nations. That is what we hear. That is the purpose of the life of Jesus Christ. And that is what he bears witness to in his baptism in Mark, which foreshadows his crucifixion. And talking with Jesus is significant because it's the exchange of the word. The word is going back and forth between the law and the prophets and Jesus. It's all a single system. And this is what Jesus has been emphasizing. Jesus is doing all this in order to teach, like you said, Father, in order to teach the law and the prophets, in order to teach these and bring this teaching to the nations. And this is what's most important. And so people get excited that our guy, Jesus, is buddies with Moses and Elijah, but that's not the point. The point is, if you understand Elijah and Moses to be authoritative, you would expect Jesus to be at least as authoritative. Now, the problem we've seen all along is that people aren't interested in the teaching of Jesus, and they're not interested in the teaching of Moses and Elijah. They think they're all great. They love it when they're shiny and bright, but they aren't interested in actually following the words of the law and the prophets that Jesus is reminding them of, and that's what is disturbing to them. I think what's most powerful about this scene in Mark is exactly what you said, that these three characters are conversing with each other. They work together. They have dialogue with each other. There's interplay, which is exactly how the Bible works. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And here you have to know scripture to understand Peter's sin. In Mark, the reason that Jesus avoids Jerusalem until his confrontation with Jerusalem is because Jerusalem, above all the other characters in the story, wants to hold the teaching back. The temple in Jerusalem is a tomb of stone built to encase the Torah so that it won't get out. That is the operative metaphor with respect to the tomb of Jesus in the resurrection in the Markan narrative. And now Peter wants to build three tabernacles to make sure not only that the law 
and the prophets don't get out, but that the gospel doesn't get out. It flows nicely from the fact that in the previous pericope, Peter still didn't understand the teaching. Right, and obviously the disciples didn't catch on to the fact that Jesus was constantly on the move and was constantly trying to get out of where he was. He was avoiding houses and villages when he could, and when he would find himself in one, he would try to get out and go out into the wilderness or get on a boat or somehow get out of there. And that Peter says, oh, it's good for us to be here, so let's all dwell together. And Peter is thinking about himself and how he can spend more time with these guys. It's not about spending time with these guys and being buddies and having a campfire together and they can roast marshmallows and tell stories. The point is they need to get the teaching out and Jesus is going to get on the move and Jesus wants to get his disciples on the move too. He tried this once when he sent the 12 out to the villages and it worked, but he's got to keep this spirit of evangelism going so that Jesus and his disciples will continue to spread the message as much as they can, as often as they can, and as quickly as they can. Look, they're on a mountain. They're receiving the Bible, the law, the prophets, the gospel. This is the full tradition, the full teaching. It's clearly, once again, a reference to Exodus and Sinai. So you're supposed to receive the scroll of the law and come down the mountain and give it to the people Peter wants to keep it up on the mountain. It's the same thing. Everybody in Mark is trying to pin the teaching down. They're getting in God's way. And in verse 6, for he, Peter, did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And that's the point, Richard. Peter doesn't know what to answer because until now, he has not come to terms with the meaning of the gospel teaching. I mean, a natural reaction would be to be terrified at Sinai, that people were terrified when they saw and heard the thunder and lightning on the mountain. But just like when Ezekiel is terrified and falls on his face, God says, stand up and go and deliver this message. Being afraid is great to show respect, but it has to be followed by obedience. If the sign or the wonder controls you, you have a problem. If you are formed by Jesus' teaching, nothing you see and nothing you experience will leave you speechless because you will know what to say. God will show you what to say, which is how the Bible works. But Peter is obviously not knowledgeable. He obviously doesn't understand. That's why Jesus has been frustrated with him. So he's paralyzed. And it's important because later in Mark, when they run to the tomb and they see that the tomb of stone could not hold back the gospel, once again, they're terrified. Fear is a very important function in the gospel of Mark. Again, whom do you fear? What is it that makes you afraid? Are you afraid of the sign or are you afraid of the teaching of Jesus? He just warned you that he's going to be coming in power. I question whether Peter is terrified for the right reason in verse 6. Then a cloud formed, overshadowing them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Obviously, this parallels the baptism of Jesus in the Mark and Prologue, and he's wearing a baptismal garment. Now we are understanding why he's baptized, why he's going to be martyred, what the crucifixion is about. It's so that we would listen to the words of the Father on his lips. The beauty of this is what we've been saying all along. Are we supposed to get excited about Jesus and his miracles? 
Jesus has been saying, well, make sure you're listening and make sure you're following. Yeah, but Jesus, the miracles have been fantastic. You know, we love watching the miracles. And finally, God just intervenes and said, listen to him. Listen, do what he says. God doesn't come along and say, look how bright and shiny he is. Look at the miracles. See how he's friends with Elijah and Moses. No, listen to him. God does not waste his words. This is the point. Make sure you're doing what he says. And of course, the cloud is a reference to Ezekiel. The Lord comes in glory upon a cloud. We're talking about the glory of the Lord. It's an oxymoron because something glorious is heavy and weighty, and a cloud is vapor. So it's a way of talking about the power of God manifest on the cross. That's not what Ezekiel's talking about, but the cross is dealing with the imagery from Ezekiel, that the power of God, who is the God above all gods in Ezekiel, the God above all nations, this power to human beings looks like vapor because we're looking for the sign and the wonder. We're looking for Pharaoh's chariots we're looking for Caesar's banner. That's what we mean by glory. That's what we mean by power. But what scripture means is the voice of the Father, which is a teaching. Right. The cloud functions so much in the Pentateuch when Moses is speaking with God up on the mountain. Moses is obscured by the cloud, which means that Moses is not the relevant one. It's the voice that's teaching Moses so that Moses can bring down this teaching. When the Hebrews build the tabernacle in the wilderness, the way that they know that the presence of God was there in the tabernacles was when the cloud would descend. When there was a cloud in the tabernacle, they knew God was present. And the tabernacle, the main function, was to carry out this Torah. Ironically here, Peter wanted to build tabernacles for them, but without a tabernacle, this cloud still came to confirm that God was present in the word, which was listen to my son, meaning what Jesus says, God has put his imprint on. In the ancient Near East, you would have a signet ring, and that was your signature. So whenever there was wax, you would press it in and then say, this is what belongs to me. And anyone who used the signet ring was able to claim authority of the one to whom it belonged. So if the king used it, it said, this is mine, this is mine, this is mine. But if he gave the signet ring to a servant, the servant could then sign, so to speak, claim, so to speak, on behalf of the king and then sign those. So when God says, this is my son, he's handing over this authority saying, whatever he says, it's on my behalf. So you have to listen to him. So if there was any doubt, which we know there was, that you need to listen and do what Jesus says. Now, God himself says, listen and do what he says. He was talking to Moses and Elijah. I mean, Mark is throwing everything at you now by chapter nine, that there's no way to misunderstand except for stubborn willfulness. Jesus agrees with the prophets, with the law, and God himself. What more doubt do you have about what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to follow him? And are you going to obey him? And do you decide whether to do what he says or not? And let's have a conference and let's have a discussion about whether to do it or not. You have to focus on this message that God himself is sending. This is my son. What he says is my word. All at once, they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone and this is a beautiful way of bringing this sign to a close. 
in effect, it's the most important part of this scene in Mark because you have the symbol of the law and the prophets and the gospel, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus. And now it's all disappeared. And what you're left with is Jesus, who's been with you all along, telling you one thing, the teaching, the teaching, the teaching. And at the end of the day, that's what you are left with when you put down the gospel of Mark, the teaching of the gospel of Mark. And the question is, are you going to obey the Father and listen to that teaching on the lips of Jesus? Or are you going to be like Peter and look for a sign and a wonder to convince you whether or not you should listen to Jesus? And we know where Mark falls on that question. Are you going to trust him? Are you willing to follow him? Are you willing to do what he says? His teaching is made up of one part Elijah and one part Moses and the stamp of approval of God himself. If that doesn't prove it to you, what more do you want? How could there be someone more authoritative than Jesus? Thanks very much, Dr. Benton. Thank you, Father. Have a great day. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.